Welcome to the conversation from St. Patrick's Studio. My name is Brian Cannon. I'm the Director of Evangelization and Adult Formation for St. Patrick Catholic Community. Today, we are joined by Dr. Hosman Ospino. He is the Professor of Theology and Education at Boston College. He's the Chair of the Department of Religious Education and Pastoral Ministry for the School of Theology and Ministry. There, he is from Colombia, where he pursued an undergraduate studies in philosophy. He has an MA in theology with a concentration in church history and a PhD in theology and education from Boston College. And his research explores the dialogue between faith and culture, which I'm particularly interested in, uh, and the impact of this interchange upon Catholic theological education, catechesis, and ministry. He's written a billion articles, a lot of great books. Um, my wife is a, a proud graduate of the University of Dayton, and uh, Dr. Ospino just gave the keynote for uh, the, the lay Marianists uh, virtual uh, gathering this summer, which I, I greatly enjoyed. Dr. Ospino, thank you so much for joining us this, uh, this fine sunny day out in Arizona. <laughs> thank you very much, Brian. It's such a pleasure to be with you in this conversation. Thank you for that. Uh, Introduction makes me sound important, you know, but uh, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> we share similar haircuts, so we've got that going on, too. That's so good. happy that you could join us today. No, that's one thing we don't have to worry about in the morning, so that's good. <laughs> that's right. We always look good. Okay, Absolutely. so the interface between faith and culture, I think um, sometimes for communities, that are really striving for inclusion, for stri striving for diversity, what can sometimes happen is that we can slip into something called cultural appropriation, right? So I think of something like Dia de los Muertos and how it's become part of the American experience. Um, can you talk a little bit about that dynamic, about what is healthy diversity and inclusion and how does that look in the context of a Catholic community? Sure. Uh well, the first thing that we need to keep in mind is that, you know, uh, many Christians have a temptation to think that uh, whatever we call faith or religion or gospel somehow came down from heaven, you know, as we understand it and see it, you know. There are people who think that Jesus, you know, said the, uh, you know, celebrated the, the Last Supper in English or in Latin, you know. Right. There are uh, people who, there are Christians who believe that, you know, uh, the, first, the apostles dressed like bishops, you know, and... Uh, there are people who believe that everybody in the early in early Christianity, you know, had a Bible with all seventy three books, and everybody read it, and and the practices that we have today, whether it's sacraments or uh, sacramentals or uh, uh, rituals, you know, like the Eucharist and so on, you know, have been exactly the same uh, all throughout history. Where am I going with this? Uh, I think that the first thing we need to keep in mind is that uh, when God becomes present in history, God comes to the encounter of humanity uh, in the concreteness of our cultures and our lives. So when God became present to the people of Israel, you know, God was interpreted through the lenses, through the culture 
calling social political lenses of what the people of Israel's life was uh, at the time, you know? So in every time a society or a culture embraces the gospel or embraces God, then uh, we tend to interpret God precisely, you know, through those lenses. Uh, now, it's fascinating, for instance, when, I mean, if you are in a country like uh, Colombia, South America, where I was born, you know, like, well, like everybody speaks Spanish, you know, everybody's Colombian, everybody's his life. In the quite best a Spanish in Latin America, from that, what I that, That's what I... <laughs> And in uh, in most of the population is Roman Catholic. You know, I mean, well, you pretty much think that you know God looks one way and can be interpreted that particular way, and that the gospel you know comes to us in, in in only one way. But what's fascinating is that once you get out of that context and somehow move uh, and you know enter into a context where cultural diversity is the daily bread then you realize that the same God who became present to those who are Spanish speaking also became highly present, you know, revealed to those who are English speaking and uh, Muslim speaking or, or, um, or Arabic speaking or those who are Jewish you know, uh, who's, uh, Jewish speaking and those who are Chinese speaking and so on, you know. And that everybody using their own cultures are actually interpreting God. So for some of us, God is God, because that's the language we speak in English. But for others, it's Dios. For others, it's Dieu. For others, it's Deo. And you just can go on and on and on and on. So the rituals that we use in, uh, in our different communities are usually shaped by the cultures that, you know, in which we are, uh, we are inserted, you know. We inherited as Roman Catholics, you know, we inherited, first of all, the, you know, a, a lot of elements of the Greek culture, the Roman culture, and throughout the centuries, we ended up in you know, picking up elements of the Euro, you know, different European cultures, you know, and then when we come to the United States of America, there is a particularly American way of living Catholicism that sometimes is not even understood in Europe or in Latin America, you know, and... Uh, so all of this, you know, somehow presents us with the opportunity to appreciate, to appreciate that God becomes, no, no, that, or that every culture uh, actually embraces the same God of revelation, the Lord, you know, the God of Jesus Christ, the God who, you know, who, uh, who raised Christ uh, from the dead in our own particular, you know, through our own particular lenses. And that's why in the context of cultural diversity, like the United States of America, we need to learn you know, to develop the habit of listening and appreciating that cultural diversity. Because, I mean, it's quite tempting to imagine that if you are a Catholic in the United States of America, therefore the only way of being Catholic in this country is if you are white, English speaking, perhaps middle class, and other forms or other expressions of Catholicism are not as valid as yours, you know, or as not, are not as important, uh, are not as important as yours. And then we tend to look at, uh, this is something fascinating, you know, as an immigrant, you know, in this country, I noticed that uh, there are many Catholics who tend to see expressions that are not mainstream as folkloric, you know, we tend to see 
you mentioned Dia de los Muertos, you know, you tend to, you know, we tend to see novenas, we tend to see you know, the blessings of the, the blessing of the throats, for instance, uh, which is very popular among Polish Catholics, as uh, something that is, wow, this is very extraordinary, this is, this is uh, beautiful, and this is, I mean, it would be great to write an article about this and take pictures about it, and, but it's not ours, you know, and that, because that's, It's not how we do it, you know. In the United States of America, we love the fact that you know there are Catholics who sing mass uh, with a mariachi band, and others use congas, and others use guitars. But in the United States of America, we use the organ because that's how American Catholicism is about. So then we find ourselves in this kind of strange situation in which we begin to make certain practices of the faith normative, no? And when some of the practices of the faith become normative through the lens of culture, then those that do not fit, no, the categories of normativity, then they become estranged, they become marginalized, they become, uh, they, they become second, third class. And then we got tensions in our communities because the moment we start discriminating or the moment that we start dismissing language, practices, culture, traditions that are important for a particular community or misinterpreting those uh, or misappropriating those, uh, th those practices, you know, eventually what we do is we are dismissing, you know, we are ignoring, we are rejecting the experience of God that these communities have had. And in the United States of America, this is a very important conversation, especially because we are a highly diverse community in the world of uh, Catholicism, you know? Uh, I mean, in the 1960s, just to give you a sense, Brian, you know, 1960s, about 90, 92% of all Catholics in this country were white, you're American, the children of European immigrants, you know, and they didn't need, need to speak Italian or German or a, in other languages. They spoke primarily English. Many have had become successful in society. So they were mostly white, you know, at the time. Today, fast forward, you know, 60 years later, Uh, the Euro-American white community is actually less than 50%, you know, of, of the entire Catholic population. And when then we have a fast-growing Latino community that is about 45, 50%. You live in Arizona, you know, in Arizona, that's, you already went through those numbers long, long time ago. The fastest-growing group in the Catholic Church is uh, the Asian community, So we got, you know, Chinese, Vietnamese, Filipino Catholics, Korean Catholics growing a galore uh, everywhere we go. And then we need to be more attentive to those cultural nuances, you know, because at the end of the day, culture becomes a framework or a lens through which we interpret God. And in the United States of America, in the Catholic Church in this country, we are privileged to see this beautiful you know, mixture of experiences of, you know, of God that are shaped through culture. You mentioned the tension that can arise um, when we uh, experience a collision, uh, collision is not the right word, um, a meeting of cultures. Yeah. Uh, and and in, in our church, and there, there's a long history of that. I think back on the prophet Isaiah talking about the nations all coming to Zion. And this is not a very popular idea to Isaiah's contemporaries. So 
So what difficulties can arise from diversity and what can we as Catholics do to overcome some of those difficulties? Perhaps the best word is tension, you know, and tension is not a negative word. As a matter of fact, tension is, you know, when there are two dynamics that either encounter themselves and somehow pushed against each other, or when they are pulling, you know, away from each other, you know, trying to take a reality and expl explain it in, 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 the, in their own particular way. And uh, we have uh, a lot of tensions in, in, in the context of cultural diversity because uh, at the end of the day, religion is nothing else but being in relationship. You know, the word religion uh, comes from the Latin religare, which means, you know, being in relationship with the divine, being in relationship with God. And being in relationship with God provides meaning to what we do to who we are as human beings. And I mean, that's the most sacred thing that I have when I am able to give meaning to my relationships, to the way I understand the world, to the way I understand what is beautiful, what is truth, what is, what is true, what is good, when I am able to understand the purpose of my life, I mean, that is, that's the greatest treasure that every human person has. And we all do that through the lens of the cultures that, you know, that have informed our existence. So when my worldview somehow enters you know, in, in dialogue or intention with other worldviews that actually do the same for, for, for people, then you know, we, we find ourselves before you know, several scenarios. Uh, the best possible scenario would be everybody is so open to seeing each other and respecting and looking and contemplating with awe how other people make meaning. You know, that would be an ideal world. I haven't seen I haven't seen that world yet in my life. You know, it's like, <laughs> but that would be that, that would be just great to see. Hey, we can dream. <laughs> I know we can dream. At least you know. In a, from an eschatological perspective, that's the idea at the end, you know. We would love to see, I mean, we would love to live, I mean, I would love to see in this diverse society, uh, you know, groups and communities and individuals who, you know, take the time to stop and contemplate difference and contemplate the other and contemplate how others know whether as individuals or as a community make meaning and understand the world and then learn from them you know to learn their perspectives now i mean there are people who do that and there are groups who who try to do that you know but but that's an exercise that requires maturity and intentionality and that requires openness you know and it requires what the bishops of the united states uh, call intercultural competencies you know so you really have to exercise at doing that but there are other scenarios and for instance other scenarios are more negative you know for instance, there are the scenarios that we encounter in many Catholic parishes, for instance, when, uh, when one group wants to overimpose their views upon another. Well, no. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm always, uh, uh, when I teach classes uh, about Hispanic ministry, you know, I always joke, you know, if you want to see the Latino community in tension, 
you know, try to put together a Marian celebration, you know, with Latinos from different countries or from different origins, you know? It's always and, smooth, right? It always uh, goes great. Oh, that is just fascinating, you know? It's like, also, uh, what virgin what are we going to celebrate? You know, are we going to... Are we going to celebrate Our Lady of the Divine Providence or are we going to celebrate Our Lady of Fatima or Our Lady of Mount Carmel or the champion, you know, Our Lady of Guadalupe? So who is going to, who are we going to celebrate and how are we going to celebrate it? So, and then, but but that's mild, you know, that, that is mild. Uh, I, I think it gets really bad, for instance, when there are pastoral leaders or when there are communities who dare to tell other communities, your language is not important or your language is not valid to celebrate your faith in this community, you know? And we tend to see that throughout the United States and in many communities. We, we tend to see English-speaking Catholics telling Vietnamese-speaking Catholics, you are not welcomed in our community because you don't speak English or, or, no, or Catholics who are Spanish speaking. You are, you know, this is America. We speak English and we don't want you to celebrate masses because you are dividing the church. So it tends to get, get you know, the scenario, you know, the, the, that, that tension tends to get, uh, tends to get ugly. Uh, for instance, when we, at, when we are making meaning, you know, when we are being religious, uh, in, our, in our faith communities, in, 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 that, in, in this process, you know, sometimes we tend to minimize the value of certain practices. I, I, in my work with, you know, different groups in the Catholic Church and doing research about faith and culture, uh, I mean, something that we need to keep in mind is that in the United States of America, most Euro-American white Catholics are middle upper class. You know, it's a highly educated body of Catholics. You know, and financially, many are doing quite well. And many of the many of those Catholics, you know, their understanding of of their faith is more rational in the in the sense not that you no know, is more valid, but in the sense of being more conceptual, you know? So it's, it's more articulated through argument and debate, you know, through books and, and, and so on. And then, you know, so that model of Catholicism it prevails in many, in many white Euro-American English-speaking communities. But then you encounter, you know, Asian communities, black uh, communities, Catholic communities, uh, Hispanic communities, where you find many Catholics who actually mediate their faith, not much through conceptualizations, not much through concepts and big ideas and big arguments and debates, but through practices of popular Catholicism, you know, like novenas and you know, Marian devotions and uh, uh, altarcitos or small altars in, in their homes, processions and so on. And then, you know, we, we, we see these, these ways of interpreting the faith, the Christian faith, all valid. The conceptual way of interpreting the faith is super valid. And the more uh, popular Catholicism way of uh, uh, interpreting the faith is also super valid. They both actually represent the richness of Catholic Christian life in general. But again, you know, when they are put in tension, you no, know, sometimes uh, we tend to dismiss one another 
arguing that one is more important, that one is better, that one is more beautiful than the other. And again, at the end of the day, it's not the ideas or the practices that get dismissed, but the entire, but, but people, you no know, flesh and blood people who actually find value. That's their treasure in many ways. How do you facilitate an encounter between those, those two um, approaches in, in parish life? Where have you seen that? Where do you find hope in that? Where have you seen that done well? Yeah. Well, I think that, that, uh, in the United States of America, in many Catholic parishes, uh, <laughs> you know, let, let me just cut to the chase. Go to Arizona. <laughs> okay. I'm here. That's one. Complete. Here I am. <laughs> go to the Southwest. You know, go to those parts of the country where uh, you, you know, were being with someone who is from a different culture or from a different, you know, or embodying a different cultural worldview is not a choice, you know? And I think that, that's, that, 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 that those are the spaces where we learn how to do, uh, how to do this, you know? It's uh, one of the, the, the images that I normally, uh, that I regularly use to talk about this is uh, marriage, you know, marriage life, you know? Uh, the fact that um, you know, a man and a woman get married doesn't mean that the man stops being who he is and that she, you know, that the woman stops being who she is. They continue to be their own selves. And when they enter into this beautiful covenant, you know, which is uh, marriage, then they start negotiating and learning from one another, you know, and there are tensions and there are ways, there are days in which, you know, they understand each other perfectly. And there are days when they don't understand each other. But the thing is that they are together, you know, they journey together. There is not an option. I cannot get up one day you know, and tell my wife, you know what, I don't feel married today, you know, so it's just like, it, there, there's no way, you know, so we, we are in this together. And I think that where I see that type of encounter is in many of the parts of the country where uh, communities have dared to actually live together in the midst uh, uh, of this uh, diversity, and then uh, people bring their own their, their own perspectives. You know, they're more conceptual, they're more popular religious, a mixture of them. And what makes it uh, perhaps palatable or what makes, you know, what creates a path forward is what in Spanish, Hispanic leaders called gente puente, you know, bridge people. I think it's those bridge people who have an understanding of both tra traditions, whether because they just you know, learn about and they grew up in those contexts or because they intentionally chose to learn about those different traditions that eventually they, you know, they start bridging those different, different communities. And the best gente puente, the best bridge people that I have met are young people, as a matter of fact, you know? are people who have, you know, they grew either, you know, it's a lot of Latinos who grew up in both worlds, you know, they grew up with a foot in one, in the Anglo world and a foot in the Latino world or a foot in the Asian world or Native American world. And then they are constantly negotiating through, you know, their identities. Those are the best people, you know, who can actually do that. Other people that are excellent bridge builders are people who have international experience people who have actually gotten out of their own 
little towns and cities and states and countries and then they just go and live in a different culture and learn a second way, a second language. They 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 realize that there is more to you know uh, eating than burgers and pizza. You know that then we can we can eat something else. You know, and that there is rice and that there is uh, different ways of cooking chicken and beef and so on. And uh, so people who have expanded their horizons, they are excellent bridge builders. So I see, I, I think that those two, just I mean to make it to, uh, not, not, to, not to make my answer too long, but I think that those two dynamics, you know, is where I see a lot of hope. When communities, you know, are with each other and they have no choice, you know, 40% of Catholic parishes in the United States of America celebrate the Eucharist and, uh, and, the, and the other sacraments in a language other than English, you know? So, which is fascinating. Almost half of the parishes in this country are already culturally diverse or multicultural. I mean, there are many ways of uh, calling these communities, but the truth is that Catholicism in this country, you know, somehow has had to live with this, in, in these kind of uh, relationships, you know, with communities in which I cannot ignore my sister or my brother who are a Hispanic or who are white or who are Native American, who are black, you know, and, and those communities, I mean, I'm not going to say that it's easy. I'm not going to say that, you know, they're always smiling uh, and there are tensions. But I think that those communities, by being with one another, are richer, you know, in their understanding of human experience and in their understanding of God. And uh, and the other and, and the other piece, as I said, you know, it's bridge people. Now, what worries me is uh, communities that isolate themselves, you know, in terms of language, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of uh, ideological position, in terms of political association, in terms of uh, social location, you know, and there is a lot of that in this country, unfortunately. So we got, uh, I mean, the United States of America has never, ever in its history been as segregated as it is today, you know, in terms of race or in terms of social class, in terms of political you know, positioning. So we have self-segregated, you know, and there are many Catholic communities that actually have chosen to do that, you know, to so move away from any form of diversity. Anyone who thinks unlike them, then is, are not you know, are not welcome in, uh, or is not welcome in, in the community. And that's not healthy. That is not healthy for the community, no, in particular. But I mean, following you know, uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, image of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, when that community isolates uh, itself, you know, it's not good for the community, but it's not good for the rest of the church either. You know, we, I mean, th those communities that are isolated and that are, that are against diversity and that are allergic to diversity or to embracing, you know, others who think differently or speak differently or act differently, you know, are communities that uh, unfortunately end up suffering, no, and, and, and may actually simply disappear because that's not the way who we are. I want to talk a little bit about this shared human experience um, that we're going through now. So I think in the realms of culture and politics, you can see huge paradigm shifts when a high impact event happens. So 
in my mind, I think of like Pearl Harbor or 9-11. And I suspect that those huge paradigm shifts can uh, happen in our theological understandings as well. So, so what do you think are the lasting impacts? Is there a paradigm shift that you see in our own Catholic theological understandings that might live on past this global pandemic? Wow, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question, Brian. Um, I mean, the first thing that we need to understand is that uh, theology is not a set of given ideas, you know, that we just you know pass from an old book, a Harry Potter-like book, you know, to the you know from one generation to the next, and there are these there are all these hidden thoughts, you know, that only the theologians without hair and old, you know, know about about them, you know, that's not theology. Theology is simply the exercise of reflecting seriously upon the faith, you know, asking questions about the faith and how and who do, uh, how do we understand God? How do we interpret God in the here and now? The role of the theologian then is to engage the tradition, not to engage, engage the scriptures and engage the practices of the church, the teachings of the church, the doctrines, you know, and, and all, the, all that makes us Catholic, you know, and interpret it, you know, in a way that the contemporary culture, you know, and, uh, can understand it and embrace it themselves. Now, every generation needs theologians, you know. There are a lot of people that I know who don't like that, uh, that, that expression, you know. They don't like theologians, but they need us. They need, they need theologians, so whether lay and ordained women and men, we need those theologians to help us understand, you know, to, to understand uh, the faith. And good theology, you know, is theology that is grounded in the best of the scriptures and tradition, of course. Otherwise, it becomes just, you know, one more subject of, you know, curiosity for uh, an intellectual, you know. So grounded in the scriptures and tradition, but at the same time, good theology is an exercise of understanding how God acts in history here and now, okay? And when you speak about uh, paradigms, you know, uh, uh, the changes of paradigms, uh, I think that those paradigms uh, in, uh, in, the, in the way we think about theology uh, emerge from the paradigms that we encounter uh, uh, in the world, you know, that we encounter, uh, that we encounter in life. Uh, we live at a time in history in which life changes rapidly, rapidly, rapidly. It's unbelievable, you know. I tell my children that I was born during a time when there were no cell phones, and they think that I'm 700 years old. <laughs> I can relate to that, yeah. <laughs> I'm not that old. No. <laughs> so, I mean, the way life, in the, the way life, I have met people who lived at a time when there were no commercial planes, you know, I mean, and, and, and they are not that old either, you know, I mean, they, they, 
So uh, I have met, I mean, we all know, we, we have met people when there was a time when there were no computers and where there were no tablets and where there right. were, when there was no internet, you know? And uh, so all, all these dynamics, globalization, technology, the wars that we have had, you know, and so on, those are human and historical paradigms, major paradigms. You mentioned in your example some specific events that were part of larger paradigms, you know, World War II and Pearl Harbor World War II. We got 9-11 and oh, this whole dynamic of global terrorism, you know. Oh, now we got the pandemic, you know, which is affecting our lives. I mean, this is the first time in history in which we are aware of a global pandemic, you know? It is likely that there might have been other global pandemics or maybe they were they were perhaps uh, more contained because people were not moving as much as we move uh, nowadays. But today we have buses and cars and planes and people bring viruses everywhere. I mean, and in a period of, of months, maybe weeks, you know, the entire planet, you know, was affected by a pandemic, which is amazing, you know? And uh, so these paradigms, good and bad, whether wars or pandemics, you know, or uh, natural disasters, you know, and so on, with positive paradigm changes like technology, globalization, transportation, uh, social media, the internet, and so on, they demand that, you know, the Christian community sits down and asks the question, what in the world does it mean to be a Christian here and now? You know, what does it mean for us to be Christian in the midst of a pandemic? What does it mean for us to be a Christian when, you know, young people spend on average every day in the United States between eight and 10 hours in front of a screen, you know? What does it mean to uh, be a Christian when there are more people, there are more young people talking about God on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram than in actually brick and mortar churches? You know, so when we find ourselves in those dynamic with those dynamics, then we just realize. Wow, this requires a different type of theology, you know, and a different type of theology does not mean that uh, we need a different God or a different Jesus or a different Bible or a different church or a different set of sacraments. I mean, we, we, we have received the tradition, but we need to interpret it in, the, you know, in light of the current circumstances. And so what are some of the paradigms that are, uh, that are emerging uh, right now? I'm, oh my goodness, there are many, but I'm gonna mention three that I find crucial, you know? One, I think that uh, in, in, in these days, and, and this is affecting the way we do theology. One is that we have a global consciousness today that perhaps we never had in, in the history of humanity. I mean, it's fascinating, it's fascinating how theologians from Africa, Latin America, Asia, North America, Europe, Australia, and anywhere else in the world, you know, can actually listen to one another and we can reflect, you know, when we say the poor, I mean, when we have someone like Pope Francis saying that we are invited to be poor, no, a poor church for the poor, 
then immediately what comes to our minds is what being, what being poor means in Latin America or in Africa or in the United States. And we are aware of that, you know, through the internet, we can go and look at that through transportation, we can travel and visit the poor and so on. And that has changed the way we understand theology. We don't have to imagine the poor. We know about what poverty and in, in, in its many expressions are. So I think that that global consciousness is one way in which we are, um, you know, is transforming the way the way we do uh, the way we do theology. I think another another uh, another major dynamic uh, or um, um, yeah, a, ma a, a major trend or, or dynamic that is transforming uh, the way we do theology is the rise of the voices of young people, you know, all throughout. And I mean, this may sound commonsensical, but, uh, but as a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's just radical. It is radical. Most theology, until very recently, have been done by men, by clergy, actually I should say by older men, you know, by mostly, no, mostly clergy, and by mostly highly educated elites. Today, we have major theological movements, you know, run entirely or mostly by young women and men, blogging, chatting, you know, posting, taking pictures, you know, uh, by writing short sentences, by engaging in hardcore reflection, you know, to the point that again, Pope Francis, with the scene in the Synod of Youth, was saying, "We cannot be. I mean, if we don't pay attention as as a Catholic Church to what is happening with the young people, we will lose them. We will lose them. We will simply lose them. And that's already happening. You know, I mean, we we should not be surprised that millions of the of people in the United States." who uh, self-identify as non-religiously affiliated and, you know, now are actually former Catholics. And most of those former Catholics stopped self-identifying as, as Catholics uh, when they were in their teens or early 20s. You know? So we, I think that that is a revolutionary phenomenon that is transforming the way we do theology. And the third, uh, perhaps, paradigm that I would see in the world of, uh, of theology, you know, in, in recent years, no, and there are many others, uh, uh, I think it's our consciousness uh, of the new voices that are emerging, you know, voices that until now, until not long ago, we did not, I mean, we didn't dare to, to listen that much, you know. Um, I want to highlight here, for instance, the voices of women theologians, you know, and women that are not trained as theologians, but women that are activists, women that are catechists, women that are leaders, you know, mothers, abuelas, grandmothers, you know, who are, are, are raising their voices, you not know, interpreting the faith and talking about God, preaching and showing us the way. Uh, we are seeing the voices of communities that until not long ago, were forbidden, for instance, from going to colleges and universities and theologates, and now they are getting the degrees and now they are running these institutions and are helping us to do theology in a different way. Uh, I, I just want to put one example, you know, the synod on the, of, the, of, uh, of the Amazonia, you know, uh, the Amazon, 
is one example, you know. I mean, if it were not for the growing number of voices, you know, uh, in the in Latin America that are concerned about what's going on in the in the Amazon region, you know, uh, we would not be having a synod like that. We would not be having that, those conversations. And it wouldn't surprise me that down the road we need to have a synod of the Saharan you know, nations, you know. Because we need to come to terms with the fact that a lot of people down, you know, uh, down there in Africa are unfortunately are not being able to live because of major droughts and wars and all that's happening there. So those people are raising their voices, and those particular voices are are having a universal impact. So that's fascinating. I mean, I would encourage anyone, you know, listen to this podcast, you know, that if you want to be a theologian this is the time in history to be a, a theologian. This is the time to engage in, in fascinating conversations because at the end of the day, we need to ask, as I said earlier, you know, what does it mean to read the scriptures in light of these dynamics? What does it mean to be a practicing Catholic and, in, and, and talking about God and reflecting about God in the midst of these circumstances? And then finally, I, I hope I'm not asking you to paint with too broad of a brush here, but these, these paradigm shifts, these dynamics that we're experiencing, how are Hispanic Catholics being impacted by these dynamics? Whoa. Well, his, uh, it, when we say Hispanic Catholics, uh, I mean, it's, it's a diverse community in many ways. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, we could speak about immigrants, certainly, but we also know that the majority of Hispanics in the United States, 64% of Hispanics were born in this country. So the majority are US born, 94% of Hispanics under 18 are US born. So what we have here is a different set of uh, dynamics uh, that are, uh, you know, or experiences that constitute the Latino, you know, uh, being Hispanic or being Latino. And uh, I mean, if we think about immigrants, for instance, you know, well, I mean, these dynamics are uh, are impacting the, the the Hispanic community because, as immigrants, you know, we need to ask ourselves, you know, what are what are some of the global dynamics that have led millions of Latin, Latin Americans and Spanish-speaking Caribbeans to move to the United States and other parts of the world, you know? And we need to talk about social justice. We need to talk about political dynamics. We need to talk about uh, human dignity, and on and on and on. But uh, if we look, if we look at you know the experience of uh, Latinos in in the United States who are growing up in this culture, so one of the biggest questions that you know young Latinos are asking right now is, what does it mean to be American and Latino at the same time and Catholic? You know. And those three dynamics go hand in hand because yes, there is a you know the, the, the vast majority of Latinos in this country are American, are born and raised in this country. They are learning the culture, they are part of the culture, they contribute to the culture, but at the same time, they are very Latino in terms of their roots, in terms of their spiritual traditions, their religious commitments, and they are and, and still the majority are very Catholic, you know, influenced by the scriptures and by the teachings of the church and by the sacramental celebrations, influenced by their immigrant parents and grandparents and relatives. So 
we find ourselves, you know, in the midst of all these conversations about globalization, young people, uh, and the conversations uh, about voices that are emerging, and Latinos are right at the forefront, you know. The Latino community is a very young population. The median age of Hispanics, Latinos in the United States is 29, you know. So, I mean, we know that more than half of Hispanics in this country are younger than 30, you know, which, you know, is, is amazing. So when we talk about young people having voices and emerging voices, well, there we have it. You know, the Latino community is right there with this challenge, you know, to ask the challenge to ask questions, to contribute, to try to understand God, to participate in society, to build society, to participate politically, to build church and to support the church and its works, no? And, uh, well, I think, again, you know, if there are Latinos, you know, uh, that are interested in where theology is going and where it's going in the context of U.S. Catholicism, this is the perfect time to start asking those questions because the present and the future of Catholicism, as a matter of fact, in this country, you know, it's pretty much Latino as we move forward, you know, or it's highly Latino, you know. I'm not going to say that only Latinos are the future, but uh, in the 21st century, most of the Catholic experience in this country will be shaped by the Latino experience. Dr. Hosman Ospino of Boston College. It's been such a rich conversation. I can't thank you enough for your generosity in speaking with us today. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, Brian. Thank you. This has been The Conversation from St. Patrick's Studio, and we will see you next time.